following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Good morning, church family. So good to be out here in the beautiful day that it is, and I appreciate that it's uh, June and not August. Aren't you grateful for that today? I'm going to bring my paperweights out because it is blowing around today, and I do need my notes. How appropriate that uh, I didn't even realize this until I was had been preparing message for a little while that uh, today we're here on on the Sermon on the Mound, and uh, I didn't even realize my my text is actually right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we'll be in Matthew six today. And uh, this morning we're going to take a look at the topic of prayer, and partly it's because I believe the Lord has a lot of room uh, to grow me in this area, and also because I believe he desires to grow us as a church in the discipline of prayer. And specifically, we want to be in Matthew 6 today and take a look at what's become known as the Lord's Prayer. If you will, turn to Matthew 6 this morning. Matthew 6, and let's stand and hear these words of Jesus to his disciples. And to us this morning, Matthew 6, we'll start with verse 5 and go through 15. It says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and, and pray to your father who's in secret. And as, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful to be here this morning, uh, to see, even as the wind is blowing here, Lord, we know your spirit is moving through your church and in your people today. And uh, God, we just depend on you to bring your word to life in us through your spirit. Open our eyes, God. Give us spiritual eyes. Give us spiritual ears. Give us a spiritual appetite for what you have for us today out of your word. We trust and depend on you for all things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. A few years ago, uh, Mel and I were given a stack of magazines, and we saw this story, and I got online and researched it a little bit more at that time. In 2016, there was an explorer by the name of Henry Worsley who announced his plan to cross the continent of Antarctica. And not only did he want to ski across the continent, but he was determined to do it unassisted and unsupported, with no supply drops or helps from dogs or, or any other source. Uh, 
And he planned this, that this trip would last about 75 days. And when asked if he was crazy to take on this challenge, he said, there's no great mystery to sliding one ski in front of the other. <laughs> in a video on his website, he stated, this is my third visit to the Antarctic, and it's different that I'm going to do this on my own this time. I think the real difference that I'm going to notice is the clarity of decision-making. Making. I won't have to ask anyone, should we stop? How are you feeling? Should we go on? Everything will be up to me, and I think I'll find that that's probably better. But, of course, the downside is that there's no one there to compare my thoughts with and to seek their opinions. But I want to do this on my own. So I'm quite prepared to accept the fact that this is me making these decisions. So November of that year, Worsley began the 1,100-mile coast-to-coast trek, pulling a sled containing his food and his tent and equipment. And he made regular journal entries on his trip, which started off really hopeful, but over the, the course of time became more despondent. By day 69, his journal read, This has been an unproductive day, unfortunately, on the realization that I don't think I have time to reach the ice shelf for the intended pickup. Today was another day of awful whiteout, and my fingers are all very sore. One finger is fro- close to being frostbitten. He was just beginning to realize that he couldn't reach his finish line and, and time to be picked up. The next day, he wrote his last journal entry that he had exhausted his resources and called in a retrieval. My journey is at an end, he said. I've run out of time, physical endurance, and simple sheer ability to slide one ski in front of the other to travel the distance required to reach my goal. Yet he was so tantalizingly close to becoming the first man to cross the Antarctic unassisted. The 55-year-old former British officer, I'm sorry, Army officer, was airlifted off the ice and transported to a hospital where he would soon die of exhaustion and dehydration. The newspaper headlines read, Antarctic explorer Henry Worsley dies 30 miles short of his goal. Such an incredible story about this dream and an incredible undertaking. And at the same time, how tragic. And some question whether he was crazy to even try it. What in the world would motivate someone to navigate such difficult circumstances, unsupported, unassisted, without any supply drops from any other source? And it would have been so easy just with one request for supplies to be dropped down. Now, you can probably see where I'm going with this. The reason I share that story is this. There's no reason for God's children to fumble and struggle through life, unassisted and unsupported without his supply of wisdom and strength and provision for the journey. God has given us himself. And communicating with him through his word and prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. Prayer is modeled in Scripture. And prayer is even commanded. But my hope today is that we don't just see this as a responsibility given to earn God's favor. It's my hope and prayer that today we'll be freshly convinced of God's love for us. And that we'll understand what a privilege and a joy it is to spend time with him in prayer. The big idea today is this. It is essential for every child of God to have a growing dependence on him in prayer because of who he is, and because of our own weakness. I'll state that again. 
It's essential for every child of God to have a growing dependence upon him in prayer because of who he is and because of our own weakness. Now, although in our reading today I included verses 5 through 15, I'm really focusing specifically on verses 9 through 13 today in what's known as the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And the first point we see in today's passage is this. We depend on God in prayer for who he is. Verse 9 says, our Father in heaven. God is a caring and capable Father. And because of its significance, I want to spend a good amount of time on this, on this first point here. Because there are some major implications in these first words. Our Father. Before we can even proceed, we must stop here and, and look at the word Father. It's the Greek word pater. For father. And in one sense, God is the father of all by, by way of creation. He's, he's the origin of all things. He's created all things. He created the heavens and the stars and the earth, and he's created us. But when Jesus uses the title father here, he has a very different and specific meaning. The usage of father here means anyone who has trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins and has a close, intimate relationship with God as father. And here's the problem. All men have sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned. Which has left us separated from God. And because we've sinned against a holy God, we deserve his wrath and his judgment. You see, it's it's impossible for man to lift up a God-pleasing prayer if God's not pleased with a man. And the only way God can be pleased with a man is when God has reconciled that man to himself through the pardoning work of his son, Jesus. Is that not, after all, the message of the gospel? We can only relate to God as father because we have been adopted as sons and daughters through the complete atoning work of Jesus. In other words, we can call God father not only because we're his creation, but because we're his children and he's adopted us. Our father has adopted us through his son to his own glory. And it's only because of Jesus' work on the cross that we can even say these words, our Father in heaven. Romans 8 says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's out of Romans 8. These words from Paul in the book of Romans bring such refreshment and encouragement and and consolation to my soul when I consider them. What an amazing grace that God the Father would love us so, that Jesus, his son, would sacrifice himself for us and that the Holy Spirit would indwell us to prompt this intimate cry of Abba, Father. Part of this new relationship is that God now deals with us differently as family. Praise the Lord. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. As life goes on, I'm more and more convinced that when it comes to my heavenly position 
and all that I've been granted in Christ, I don't have a clue just how good of a deal I got. <laughs> As I've heard Bruce, Bruce pray uh, multiple times, we are dull in our senses. <laughs> but I'm trying to fully grasp and understand the gospel. We have to have an understanding of God's love for us through adoption. And prayer begins and continues with this gospel reality of God as Father. John Stott says, true prayer is impossible unless and until God has reconciled himself through Jesus Christ and God has adopted us into his family and made us his children. Then and only then can we begin to pray. Now, with all of that being established, this doctrine of adoption in place, we can begin to pray, our Father in heaven. Now, an observation here, and it, it might be pretty obvious, but it's still worth stating, if God is our Father and we are his children, we're to come to him like children, with a childlike faith, a childlike humility, childlike simplicity. We don't have to impress him, nor could we. Matthew 18, 1 through 5 says, it's Jesus speaking. He says, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If we belong to him and we should pray like we belong to him, like we're his, there's no reason for God's children to live like we're fatherless. Trying to sort things out on our own, operating on our only on our own resources not benefiting from the wisdom and the guidance of this father. When we have a father who loves to lead us and guide us, be our provider, one who has earned our trust. We approach God in prayer with this childlike dependency on him. We come to him prayer, to prayer, uh, him in prayer as our loving father, not sheepishly, but with boldness and full assurance of faith, as Hebrews says. So our position in God through Christ is secure. Now let's consider God's disposition toward us. The word father also says something about God's perspective of us. Let's think about this. Though we were once God's enemies, now in Christ, God loves us as he loves his own son. Isn't that hard to believe? Let that sink in. I was having lunch with a pastor friend of mine down in Grants Pass a couple years ago, and he was telling me about Something that God had done in his life, something amazing, and then and then he went on to something else, and he was talking about how God was, had been good to him in another thing, and then it, it's almost like this joy welled up inside of him, and he finally just said, I must be God's favorite. <laughs> when, when John the Apostle speaks about himself in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Friends, when we look at the cross... How can we not have a sense that we are God's favorite? The God who delivered us from all our sins is also the Father who loves us and welcomes us. The God who saved us by the work of Christ on the cross is the same God who invites us to become part of his family. As I think about my girls as they were born and growing up, they didn't have to do anything especially wonderful for me to love them. You with kids can relate to this. In fact, I have some fairly vivid memories of being awakened in the, in the middle of the night when they had the stomach flu. And it may or may not involve uh, cleaning of shag carpet about 2 a.m. 
But needless to say, it was quite unspectacular. But they're my kids. When I think about it, there were so many times when being a parent got, showed me how God looks at me, his compassion in my life, how I'm cherished, how I'm accepted by him. And just as true, there were many, many times that I had to stop and consider how kind God has been with me to guide what my disposition should be toward my daughters in various situations. <laughs> now, I loved them then, and to this day I love them because they're mine. God loves you if you're his. And if this is what pours out of the heart of a weak and imperfect father like myself, how much greater is God's love for us? Matthew 7 says, which one of you, if his son asks him for, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Christian, let this good news of the gospel wash over you freshly today. God loves you. Your heavenly Father loves you. You did not and could not do anything to impress him. God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And for that reason, we pray, our Father who is in heaven. Now, I've seen God answer prayers in my life in, in a few spectacular ways, just amazing. I'd be happy to share them with you sometime. And I would have been devastated if he hadn't intervened. I would have been in hot water if he hadn't rescued me from my foolishness. I would have lost heart had the Lord not been on my side, as Scripture says. And for every one of those prayers that were answered in spectacular ways, there have been a million small ways that my Heavenly Father has been faithful day after day through all of my life. Has he been faithful to you? He's been present, speaking to me through his word, sustaining me, available, comforting me, disciplining me, full of grace with new mercies every morning. And so we pray, our Father in heaven. So we depend on God in prayer, not only because he is our Father, but we depend on him in prayer because his names represent all of his ability. And I might add, his names represent his very nature. Verse 9, Jesus prays, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, some people get kind of riled up when you mispronounce their names, like Buchley and Bindelay. <laughs> if you've been around our church, in fact, a couple of Buchleys, you know, Buakley, sorry, uh, were on the, on the field today. But people do appreciate it when you get their name right. Names have significance. They're connected with a person's identity. And hopefully we all want to have a good name in our community. But especially in some cultures, and specifically in the Old Testament, Names held such great significance. Here are some of the better-known names of God in the Old Testament. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. This is the name Abraham called God when he provided a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Jehovah-Rapha, this is just after the exodus and the plagues upon Egypt. The Lord says to his children, I am Jehovah-Rapha, 
the Lord who heals you. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. This is the name that Gideon gave the altar he built after he had been in the presence of the angel of the Lord and was assured that he wouldn't die. Jehovah Rohi, the the Lord is our shepherd. David had much time to ponder his relationship as a shepherd to his sheep, and he realized it was much like his relationship with God, his shepherd. And so he declared, Jehovah Rohi is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jehovah Sitkanu, Jehovah Nisi, Elohim, Shema, Tabaoth, and on and on in Scripture, we see the names of God. God reveals his ability and his nature through the glorious names that are attributed attributed to him throughout Scripture. And consider this. We have an open invitation from our Father, who's our provider, who brings us healing, who is our peace and shepherds us, the Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. When God tells us to pray, he's not a, a taskmaster master heaping endless burdens upon us. Our God says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Why would we not want to come to him? How can we pass up his invitation? Busyness of life? Too distracted? Do you realize that God can do more in five seconds than what we could all do in the totality of all of our lives combined? (laughs) Do we understand why it's good to prayerfully depend on him for our church? Depend on him for effective witness in the world, for our families? Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy outstretched hand. There's nothing too difficult for thee. And that word difficult, it means there's nothing too wonderful for you. There's nothing too glorious or marvelous for you. And we see in this prayer that Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Interestingly, this word for hallowed in the scripture is the same word that's used throughout scripture as sanctify. Sanctify your name, make it holy, set it apart. But we know that God's name is holy and God's name is set apart from every other name. So why should we pray, hallowed be your name? Jesus used the same word, hallowed, when he prayed for his disciples. He said, Father, sanctify them, hallow them for your with your truth. Your word is truth. And in 1 Peter 3.15, you may have heard this scripture. It says, in your hearts, revere. Same word for hallow. In your hearts, hallow Christ as Lord. Christian, God demonstrates his holiness in the world by creating a holy people who will call on his name and proclaim the gospel and accomplish good works. This is his process of sanctifying us and hallowing his name in the world. And so we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name or hallow your name in us. Not only is God our Father, and not only do his names represent all of his ability, but but we depend on him in prayer because he will have the final say in every situation. Do you believe that? Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be prayerfully depending upon God because he's sovereign and he will have the final word in every situation. We pray because God is king and this king has a kingdom. And he is in control. 
And because all his ways and his will are good and perfect, so we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, surely our prayer will include requests for our health and our family and for work. But what do we see emphasized in heaven? God's will, God's glory, the worship of Christ. In heaven, God commands the angels and they go. Every source, every resource of heaven is undisputably at his disposal. His will is being done in heaven. Angels obey, serve, worship. In heaven, there's no question who the reigning king is. Oh God, let it be so on earth. In heaven, in heaven, Jesus is exalted. Much is being made of his lordship. His name, his reign. Cherubim and seraphim worship him. There's no will apart from God's will in heaven. So we pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. There's great comfort for every believer at this point. Amongst all the weirdness and the chaos and the turmoil and brokenness we see in our world, we're reminded once again that God is the undisputed reigning king. And we benefit when we depend on him as we walk through this world. So not only do we depend on, depend on God in prayer because of who he is, but we depend on God in prayer because of our own weakness. First, we look at this, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. We see from this verse that we are limited. What a contrast this is. We've been talking about these lofty, heavenly things, and now we're talking about some earthly things. What a contrast. John Piper says it's at this point in the Lord's Prayer that we see such a contrast between the first half and the last half. We see the big and we see the little. We see the glorious and we see the common. We see the majestic and the mundane. We see the lofty and the lowly. I find such comfort in this portion of the prayer because I see that God's not only concerned with the hugeness of his glory and his will and his kingdom, but he also cares for my most basic need and cares for your most basic need. And he hasn't only met this need with manna, but he's been gracious in giving us taste buds and flavors to enjoy and appreciate and to give God glory and to worship him. Now, if I began talking about a tender, juicy, flavor-filled tri-tip right now, it it might really get your appetites going, but that wouldn't be very nice, would it, if I did that? So I'm not going to do that. But if I did, if I did, I would point out how kind God is and let us appreciate his goodness and how he has blessed us and even the most mundane of provisions and letting us enjoy and worship him through it. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're reminded of our dependence on God for our most basic needs. And don't we see how helpless we are without food? We're humbled as we recognize just how desperate we we are in need of God's care and provision for the most basic things. Al Mohler writes, man's pride has no place before the throne of God. 
we're so limited in our ability to make food. I mean, we're, we're unable to create food. We can sh- surely plant seeds and water them, but we depend on God to do the rest, don't we? We can purchase a cut of meat at the store, but only God has created a cow. <laughs> our hunger serves as a reminder multiple times every day that we need God to provide. That's why we stop and pray and thank him for the food. God always provides out of his tender care. God's created us with physical needs as a picture, a representation, a reminder of our spiritual need of him. As Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When we pause and thank God for our food, we, it would serve us well to recognize and remember not only our physical need for food, but our spiritual need for him. So not only do we depend on God because we're limited, but we need to depend on God in prayer because we're sinful. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Now around our house, we enjoy good period dramas. And you know what I say, mean when I say we enjoy period dramas, right? <laughs> well, there, there seems to be a common theme in, theme in some of these period dramas of a debtor's prison. And so it was in biblical times. Debtors knew the reality of being sentenced to prison when their debt was beyond their means to pay. And the, the penalties were severe and they were harsh. But the weight of our spiritual debt was so much greater than any material debt. Our debt was a debt of sin. And apart from Christ, we were hopeless and helpless with no way out. As significant as our daily need for food is, we have an even greater eternal need for forgiveness of sin. I had a debt I could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only forgiveness through Christ can clear our debt, our guilt, and establish a right relationship with God. Our fundamental spiritual problem is not a lack of knowledge. It's not lack of opportunity. It's not some unmet social need. Our fundamental spiritual problem isn't something that somebody else has done to us. Our No way. Our, our primary problem is our own sin. We've broken God's law. We've disobeyed his commands. And because of this, we need his forgiveness. And we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And praise God as one of the Puritans Puritans so wonderfully wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in me. (laughs) If our sins are already paid for, why should we continue to pray for forgiveness? When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, just before his crucifixion, this, he did this shocking thing when he washed his disciples' feet. And he said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Because Peter didn't want to let him wash his feet. And then Peter flipped and he said, in that case, wash my hands and my head too. But Jesus explained this principle. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Jesus then went, would go forward and die on the cross paying for our sin with Peter's, and and those sins were dealt with once for all. So the point is this in this passage. 
that his blood is sufficient and our justification was complete when Christ died on the cross. But as we walk, walk through this world that's filled with sin and we live in our mortal flesh, we're going to have an ongoing need for cleansing and forgiveness in our sanctification. And so we pray, forgive us our debts. And not only do we pray, forgive us our debts, but we say, as we have also forgiven others. And we must not confuse this. As Jesus, what he's saying here is not that we, we need to forgive others. And when we forgive others, then our sins will be forgiven. That would be a works-based relationship. No, what Christ is saying is that when we have truly experienced God's true forgiveness through Christ, there will be a fruit of forgiveness in us towards others. We heard about that last week. Robert mentioned that as well. When we understand how great our debt was and Christ canceled that debt, we're ready to forgive others. There's this parable of the unforgiving servant in Scripture that I just appreciate so much. A king was calling in the debts of his servants, and one servant owed the equivalent of several million dollars in today's numbers. And the king was going to sell him and his family. And the servant pleaded with the king, and and the king had compassion on him and forgave his debt. That very same servant had a fellow servant that owed him about three months' wages. And he grabbed the guy and started choking him and demanded that he paid what he owed. And he and then he had that guy thrown in prison. The king, hearing this, summoned the servant and reprimanded him and had him thrown in prison. Here the king had forgiven this massive debt, yet the servant was unwilling to forgive this small amount. And the king was enraged. The moral of the parable and the, the moral of Jesus' words in this prayer it's not that when we forgive others, somehow we earn God's favor. No, we've never deserved to be forgiven, nor could we. No, it's when we have known and experienced God's forgiveness and mercy, we have hearts that are ready to forgive others as Christ, uh, God in Christ Jesus forgave us. And Jesus said, this is what his kingdom is like. So we depend on God in prayer because we're limited, and we depend on God in prayer because we're sinful. And finally, we depend on God in prayer because we're vulnerable. Verse 13 says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray to God the Father, lead us not in temptation, but would he lead us into temptation? We know that the book of James says that God tempts no one. I've heard this described like this. A mom going to the, can- to the grocery store has her child in the cart. Does she go down the candy aisle or does she not? We need to know as we walk with God through life that he will protect us from our own weaknesses. He knows. He knows our weakness. Do we? Do we understand our own vulnerability to sin? We are vulnerable and we do have an enemy. Deliver us from evil. We have an enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And when talking about temptation, we must realize that we have this enemy that prowls around like a lion who's seeking whom he may devour. And there are plenty of scriptures to tell us about this enemy, the devil, and his intent against God's kingdom, and therefore his intent against us. We're reminded in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers and darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But as we are to be aware of our enemy, we fix our eyes on Jesus, our Savior, the one who has defeated our enemy. We can be in error in one of two ways. We can either blame every negative thing that comes into our life on our enemy, or we can be blind to the fact that we even have an enemy. But we don't want to fall in the ditch on either side of this matter. C.S. Lewis writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. But we are instructed to pray for spiritual protection from the evil one. In Ephesians 6, again, it says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we are to pray, Lord, protect us. Help us know our own weakness. Jesus also said in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went away to pray, that he went away to pray, came back and found his disciples sleeping, did that a couple of times, and then he came back and he said to them, watch and pray. Why? that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We must understand the weakness of our flesh. And we have safety and strength in the shelter of the God most high. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. We need to run to the Lord in prayer and depend on him. So in closing, We should depend on God in prayer because of who he is. He's a caring and capable father. His names represent all his ability. He will have the final say. We must depend on God in prayer because we're weak. We're limited. We're sinful. And we're vulnerable. We are created to depend on God in prayer for all things. And what a gift it is that we have access to the throne of the king, our loving father. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. I'm going to end with a story this morning. And uh, many of you have probably heard of the, the Chilean mine disaster that happened. Some of you may recall the story in 2010 that this chilly mine collapsed, trapping 33 miners nearly a half mile below ground. They were left battling starvation and hopelessness as there was a slim chance of rescue. And a couple of weeks in, there was just enough food for each man to get one cookie every two days. And in time, they stretched that out to three days to make the food last longer. At one point, A single slice of peach, about half the size of a thumb, was found, and it was meticulously divided into 33 slivers about the size of a thumbnail. On on day 17, a drill had been growing louder and louder, and then it suddenly stopped, and the sound of the drill 
was replaced by a whistling escaping of air. One of the drills had finally broken through. Can you even imagine? The miners tied notes on the end of that drill bit, informing those on the surface that all 33 of them were still alive. After 17 days of despondency, the men finally had hope. But their ordeal was far from over. For the remainder of those 69 days underground, food, clean water, and a phone line and other supplies were passed a half mile down a four and a half inch hole. You know that those miners were eventually delivered, but what a picture that is for us as we're in this world. We also will one day be delivered. My deliverer is coming. <laughs> but for now, we should live with this acute awareness of our dependence on God, his supply, his lifeline. Our lifeline to heaven is dependence on God through prayer and through his word. For every provision of his hand, he gives us access to himself, the greatest gift of all. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you've made yourself available to us. Who are we that you are mindful of us, God? Thank you for your kindness and your goodness. Thank you for being such a wonderful father, showing us great love, demonstrating your love for us and giving your son. This morning, if there's anyone here that is not dependent on God for the payment of your sin, Christ has made the payment. Turn to him in faith. Turn to him today. And God can be your father. Lord, we are grateful to be yours. I pray, Father, that you will grow us in dependency upon you in prayer. God, help us not. Turn away from this wonderful gift of yourself you've given to us. But may we grow daily in our enjoying you and loving you and truly knowing that in your presence is the fullness of joy. Grow me personally, Father. Grow us as a church, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.